people on our team. There's somebody that was one week away from being homeless. There was somebody that was working at a gas station. They were a cashier at a gas station. They started working at FinSuite. So we get people that are ready to learn. They are going to grow into something special. And that comes down to personality traits, not skill. And that's the strategy and it's working really well. And that is my favorite part about FinSuite. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Webflail. Ah, that is satisfying to say. I'm your host, Jack, and today my guest is Joe Krug. If you're listening to this podcast, you already know Joe and the incredible things he's done for not just him, but his team and the Webflow community too. But I'm going to do a recap just in case. He started FinSuite Web Agency in January 2016 with no dev knowledge, no money. But through determination and hard work, he grew in confidence after getting results for clients and things accelerated. In 2017, Joe hired two devs and really started motoring. As the agency grew, he started a YouTube channel. And in 2019, he had 12 employees. In early 2020, he turned down a $1.24 million offer to sell FinSuite and has since gone on to create the FinSuite community, Clonables, Client First, Build Strategy, Attributes, FinSuite, Chrome Extension, Acquired, Wizd. It's insane. The failures that we talk about today are a startup that taught Joe a lot about business, failed cold calls for website clients, and hiring the wrong people early on in FinSuite journey. Embrace and learn from failure in episode 50 of Webflail with Joe Krug. Joe, welcome to Webflail. Thank you, Jack. I am really happy to be here. Great. And I hope I got all the dates right there. Sometimes when you refer to people's websites and LinkedIn and stuff, you have to check these things. And I was uh, nervous that I was going to mess that up, but I'm glad that we got it all together. So, this is maybe a difficult question to start with, but I think it's an important one. What is your relationship with failure? Relationship with failure. I would say it is ongoing, common, and something I work with on a daily basis. Failure, I don't always see as negative. Sometimes it could be negative. Sometimes it could be positive. But I like to have successes and failures every single day. So I would say a pretty healthy relationship with failure. It does sound it. I mean, I can't help feeling all the things that you've tried to do. And, you know, some things go really well, some things don't go so well, but you keep making, you keep growing. So, I mean, I guess it's a little bit like stress. You know, when people say, oh, I, I don't want a stressful life, but you, some stress is good stress. And I think failures help you grow. I mean, it seems that you've got the same opinion there. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't know what a failure is, then you don't know what success is. I think they, they play together very well. If you have a goal to do something or you, you want to go and complete some task, there has to be a success or a failure point. You have to decide what that is. You can't just do something and, and not have any outcome to it, whether good or bad. So yeah, absolutely. It's just something that exists and it's okay. And very educational, right? I think a lot of what I learn in business is from the failures. 
from mm. my failures, from other people's failures. It's just, it's the best learning tool. And after seven years, I mean, how do you feel about your achievements? Do you look at them like, eh, yeah, whatever, next thing? How did you process that intro being read back to you? Well, we've done a lot. Every time I read that company history or, or hear something like that, I think, wow, we've done so much over these, these past seven years. I like to have the success of launching a project and then look back on that project a few years later and think, wow, for our current standards, that's a failure. So at the time, it wasn't a failure. This was a great project. This was a, an excellent launch something really valuable to the community. But we've grown so much that this is no longer up to our standards. And I look at this as a failure. Let's archive it. Let's get it out of here. Let's make a new version of this. So yeah, we've done a lot. I'm always looking for the next thing, but in a good way, in a way of let's improve. Let's get to that next step, that next level, because what we've done in the past was great, but it no longer applies to, to who we are today. God, that's such an interesting point of view. So it's kind of like your comfort zone grows. And as a result, you want to kind of push that comfort zone every single time as you as you grow, your team grows, you get more and more experienced. And I guess how you look back on past successes, you're like, yeah, that was good, but we can do better now. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that's been a key part of, of FinSuite growing and and your team's mentality? Because I guess that's the other thing. You're mentality obviously kind of shapes the whole ethos of your company, right? Yes, exactly. We're always trying to get better. We're always growing. That's a mentality, a culture aspect of FinSuite. And that's why we release new versions of things. We, we're always trying to make updates and say, hey, we have a better version of client first. We have a better version of attributes coming. We have a better version of this. We are always trying to get better. And this is really valuable when you have a team that is relatively novice to start. A lot of people join FinSuite as a novice, lower level, kind of new employee, a lot of people. And the goal is that person is going to get better and better and better and better. And then in a few years, you say, wow, this person is amazing. They're excellent. They're a pro. And that all comes from that, that mentality of improvement. So yeah, this is, it's right inside the culture. And it, it comes from this, this idea of we can always do better. And I know that, you know, maybe I'm digging a bit too deep into personal stuff here. So do tell me if I am. But I read this really interesting uh, article that you wrote called Eight Childhood Business Lessons from Your Dad. And this mentality that you're talking about, I mean, you you talk about it like, oh, this is just me. This is how I am. But I wondered, was that cultivated early on in childhood or kind of how did you come to have the mindset that you have? That's a great question. Well, I have to give some credit to my mom here. She is always saying it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Like this, this may have gone wrong. This may not be what you expected, but it will be okay. So that kind of mentality is really important when you're talking about failure, because you have to think that everything's going to be okay after the failure. 
if you fail and you are so worried and stressed about that failure, it may be hard to do better the next time. It may be hard to really understand um, why you failed. So everything is going to be okay. This is super important in this idea of a relationship with failure. And and then back to that article. Yeah, my my dad really taught me a lot of important personal lessons that I tried to relate to business. So this is not, I don't really see business failure as a business thing. I see failure in everyday life. And when it's in everyday life, you as a person have to be ready to, to address it, not just in a business sense. So I don't, I, I don't even know if I answered your question there, but I was just kind of going off on some of those, those lessons I learned earlier on. No, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense that you, how you look at trying new things basically dictates whether you even start doing that new thing. Anyway, it, it's like the fundamental first step to even taking action to actually being, you, taking taking steps forward to put something out there into the world that didn't exist before. And if you go in with the mentality like, this might go wrong, but I accept that it's gonna it's gonna be okay. Then you can't lose, really. I mean, yeah. you're kind of just you're taking positive steps, and things will be okay. There's no there's no good or bad. It's just like we're moving forward in the direction that we want to move at that time with the knowledge that you currently have. So I think that's just a really fundamental, powerful lesson there that obviously has put you in good stead. You've just kind of ridden through wave after wave of new thing, new thing, new thing. Actually, we're going to go back to the thing that now in hindsight isn't quite right. We're going to improve it. It just sounds such a positive thing because I think some people get so caught up in, oh, well, might, this might not work because of X. It's like, who cares? We just need to just make, you know, make moves and, and it will be okay. We're talking a lot about the the products and the tools and things that actually launched and released and that we can look back on and say we can improve this but there's another aspect of projects that never get finished that's a huge thing and we don't we don't talk about this a lot we don't we don't release an announcement saying that we ended up not launching something we were working on but it happens all the time so for every product or tool or piece of content that we launched at FinSuite there's an equal number of failed projects that never made it that mm. got up to 50% or 95%. Like there, there's really some things that we worked on, we put resources in and we never ended up launching it for whatever reason. So you see a lot of success, but in that success, along with that success are the same amount of failures or more failures. Yes, the tip of the iceberg when like below the surface, the things that maybe people don't talk about it, yeah, it really, really resonates. One thing that I think if anyone's listening to this interview so far and is like, I really want to know more about FinSuite and, and a lot of the stuff that, that Joe's talking about, go and check out the FinSuite blog. There is so much interesting stuff in there. But one article that you wrote that I want to reference that very much links with this is why I didn't sell FinSuite for $1.24 million. And there's a title that says the crazy shit FinSuite does and wants to keep doing. But you essentially talk a lot about how your um, perception of money is very different from the traditional agency model. And I think 
this very much lends itself to just being like, fuck it, let's do it type mentality that seems to have put you in really good stead. And I, I just want to touch on that. Can you explain to anyone that hasn't read that article how you approach the business side of running an agency and how you just try stuff out in a way that most agencies might think, whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we release a lot of products, we build a lot of tools, and we really don't look at the financial impact of building those tools and building those products. Before we think about money, we think about, do we need this tool? Do other people need this tool? Is it worth our time and effort to build this tool? And that's, that's the leading question, not do we have enough money to build it? We have to be scrappy. We have to do a lot for a relatively low amount of money, a low amount of time. That's how we decide if we do the next thing. Should we be doing this? Not can we afford it? Now, we were not able to do this early on. I'm not saying that we're doing this kind of mentality in the first or second year. Once we start building a little bit of money on the side, we can now start to worry less about it. That's, that's the mentality. Not saying, hey, we can't do this because we can't afford it. Say you can't do something because it's not a good idea. That's the reason you shouldn't do something. And I think also it's quite a lazy excuse to say, oh, we can't do this because of money. Because I think mm -hmm. sometimes having very little money gives you the kick up your ass you need to, to actually think quite creatively and problem solve in a, in a way more dynamic way than you would with all the money in the world. There's this story of the Wright brothers who first people to fly a plane and they were competing with all these science you know, laboratories around the world who had like the most incredible equipment and stuff and all the money that, that they could. But these brothers just tried to fly and fly and fly and like broke legs and just, and they did it in the end. And I think it's a really interesting story that I think illustrates your point where it's like, you know, having, having some limitations on money is actually is really helpful. But the crux of what you're saying really is that money isn't the priority to decide whether you do the thing or not. It's actually the quality of the idea and, and the potential that that idea has to impact people. Absolutely. Exactly. And being a bootstrap business, we absolutely have to be creative when it comes to using our money. Companies that take a round of investment, they will act differently than a company that is going month to month hoping that they can pay everybody. So yeah, it's, it, I think it completely changes the mentality of business uh, when you have to really be creative with how you spend your money. And for anyone that is wondering why Joe didn't sell FinSuite uh, for, for that amount of money, essentially you were doing great work. People really valued the service that you were doing for your clients, but you wanted to do a lot of the stuff that we talked about, products, community, and all of that stuff that might not have been, you might not have been able to do, even if you were going to be the CEO of the company that you sold, potentially, I imagine, it might be like, oh, no, that's out of out of scope, or that's, and you were just like, no, this is what I want to do. Is that is that fair? Exactly, exactly. It's It's all about what's on the balance sheet to a company buying another company. 
in, in most cases. So what's on the balance sheet, how much money you made, how much money you spent over the past few years, and that's how we get the valuation. And continuing, if you're doing a marketing activity, there should be some relation to the revenue that comes in from it. If you're doing community, how do we measure that? Why are we hiring five people to do something that's generating zero direct revenue? These are all really difficult questions for somebody watching from a distance, from the, the parent company owner. So I didn't like that. I, I didn't see that for FinSuite. I really felt that we had a chance with this product and community initiative, and it was completely ignored. So, yeah, I, I wanted to explore it. And look at you now. Good decision. <laughs> Good yeah, decision. definitely. And speaking of, I'd like to to touch on that. I mean, so FinSuite has 502 YouTube videos, 18K subs. It's got the FinSuite Pro community. We've got Wizd and all these other products. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how FinSuite has changed from design and dev to dev to now focusing a lot more on kind of community and, and products? Well, let me start at the beginning here. We, we were design and dev, and we moved to dev because I thought it would be a better working experience for the whole team. It was really a culture move. It was how can I get people working on projects, feeling good at work, making money, and limit stress. Limit failures, really, with design, we found that there were a lot of failures that were just out of our control because design is so opinion-driven. We could have failed in a project even if we thought we did such a good job and we did exactly what the client asked us to do, but at the end, they didn't like it, so it was a failure. So we can limit those failures, and we thought that going dev only would do that, and that's a really good decision. Really, within the first month or two, it was very clear that that was the right move for us. And then as we started doing that, we started getting more into dev. We started thinking more about this product side. We're getting better at dev naturally because we're spending less of our resources on design. We're spending mm. more of our resources on development. And that goes hand in hand with writing complex scripts for clients, with creating little snippets that we need to help us in client projects. And if we're doing all of these things for ourselves and we need these things, we know that other people need these things. We have a lot of clients coming in. They're all asking for this same set of requirements. So let's go and build that. And then let's go and release that and use it as a marketing tool. And that's really how it started as a marketing tool. Just create cool things that show our talent. That was a way to, to get clients to say, wow, look at what they built here. They have to be able to build my my marketing site, they built this, this whole tool. This is so impressive. So it really helped the company, the, the transition. It helped it all throughout, through brand image, through people following the company, and through Google search. The, the transition was a really, really good one for us. Every single step was, was the right move. I, I feel like we could do so many different episodes about content creation, about lead generation by building products, the lessons that you've learned from products. But we're not going to do that because it's time for your failures. And I'm excited to get into these. There's plenty more nuggets to come. So tell me about failure number one 
a startup that taught you a lot about business. Yes. I, I always wanted to work for myself ever since I was young. This is something young, young age, 10 years old. I always thought that I was business owner, entrepreneur, doing my own thing. After college, I had an interesting offer from a neighboring, a neighboring company that was doing something similar to me, college couponing, college discounts. And I, I joined this company and it was, it was a, a really interesting experience. There was, there was a lot of people my age doing these very advanced business things. And what I mean by advanced business things is making decisions, building teams, managing clients, managing, you know, doing all of these things. And when you're right out of college, 21 years old, that's a lot. So I'm, I go to this company and I'm learning so, so much. Every day, it's like I have a new, a new thing that I said, wow, I learned this at work. I was managing a sales team. I was selling myself. I was um, helping with company operations. I was playing around with websites. This is the transition into websites. But really, what I learned the most from this company was through some of its failures. And that is, that's what made the, the experience so, so valuable. In the end, the company failed. And one of the big reasons for that was a lack of transparency. There's a lack of transparency everywhere throughout the culture. And it really, it really taught me that that's not the best way to do business. You can do business like that. It's not necessarily wrong, but it's not the best way to do it because transparency builds trust and trust is what builds your business internally and externally. So yeah, that, that first experience, that first pre-FinSuite experience that I had was incredibly valuable. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, why did this business fail? Do you think it was to do with the lack of trans transparency or was that just a, a you know, a, a side note as to how you didn't want to run a company in the future? Well, I think any company would fail for a wide array of reasons. I think transparency is one of them, but there were many other things. A few of those would be decision-making. You know, it's sometimes you make a decision and you look back on it and say, wow, that was not the right decision. That's okay. That can happen. But if you find that that's happening all the time, where most decisions get that end response, that wasn't the right decision, that can really hurt a business. So mm. consistent decision-making that just wasn't the best decision. Then the transparency and talent. The, the talent was good in places and not good in other places. And it, it also showed me that web development, web applications, websites, it's all very complex. It's all very challenging. And I don't think that the team was assembled well enough to, to really carry out a lot of the vision that the company had. So a bunch of reasons for failure. And I would say those are three top ones. Interesting. And on your website, I mean, you've got the values. You have a blog where you write very candidly, even about your childhood. You've got 
hundreds of videos where you're talking about the ups and downs of running an agency and the things that you've learned. So you've kind of gone so hard the other way that <laughs> you're like, I am, I am going to be full on transparency. But that seems to have been an active business decision as well. I mean, is this kind of linked to the mentality around putting products out there and creating content and things that are basically helpful for people so that your own profile is raised and your brand image is raised? Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. That's a, a great analogy there. So I I tend to do that when I I find that I want to do something, I go 100%. So I find I don't want a lack of transparency. So now I go the exact other side extreme level where I say I will be as transparent as possible. I'm going if anybody asks me a question, I'm here to answer it. It's very rare internally and externally that I decline answering a question. So I'm here to be transparent, 100%. The product and community side of FinSuite wasn't as respected in the potential buyout. So I went 100%. Hey, this buyout didn't happen. This was one of the reasons, the product and community. So now let's go 100% with that. Let's take this idea and this initiative and this passion and see if it works, see if it can it can do what I imagined. So yeah, absolutely. It all ties together. This, I see something I don't like. I see something that I think can be improved. And I go 100% the other way into trying to implement that or do that or improve on that for myself. One thing that uh, kind of links to this idea, I think, about being transparent and putting yourself out there, actually not only just being good for your company, but good for you know, lead generation, good for community support, etc. There's a beautiful quote on your website that says, we don't hire salespeople for sales, we hire creators. And um, I've noticed that there's some, been some pretty big new hires at FinSuite over the last few months from Alex to others. Can you tell us a little bit about FinSuite's mentality, not just from you as a content creator and kind of being the the face of FinSuite and getting leads, et cetera, et cetera, but also kind of giving these same tools and tactics to the rest of your team and being like, hey, we can all do this, guys. Yeah. This is something relatively new. This idea of I was the face of the company. I created the most videos. I created the most content. I released the most projects to everybody on the team will now be supporting this role. I was supporting it because I had to support it. I was one of the only people on the team that was able to do it and available to do it and wanting to do it even for that matter. And now after these people on the team have grown professionally, like I said earlier, where you start novice and then you grow into something great. Once people get to that great level we can create a culture where they're interested in creating content, where they're interested in creating the products, where they're interested in interacting with the community. And that's exactly what we try to do. And we have been doing, I think, really well for the past six months. We have our FinSuite Plus community where we do live sessions three times a week. And I don't do any of them. And for the past six months or so, we have been constantly putting out videos from the team from, hey, I, I've never filmed a video before to now I'm going to do a live session with my company, FinSuite, and it's going to go out on YouTube. 
and people are doing it, and it's so nice to see. So yes, I started the trend, I set the stage, and my perfect dream is that I can now step away from it. I can go further and further away from that, that task, that initiative, and watch this beautiful, flourishing team take it over and hopefully improve on it. Do you not think, though, that this is the Joe of today talking versus before? Do you think you were making the most content and stuff partly because you're trying to like kind of let let go of the tools, but you're like, well, this is kind of what I'm like. This is my thing. This is my baby. You're going to hold my baby. Like, is it do you think you're at a level of maturity as an agency owner to now know when to step in and when to basically empower the rest of your team to be like, hey, guys, you got this. Go, 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 go. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is something learned over years. And I think a skill. It's definitely not something that that was easy or I was able to do earlier in the business. Right? I needed to check everything. I needed my final touch, my final comment on everything whether that be client work or a piece of content or anything like that. Now, I don't have to check everything. I don't have to check most things. I check them because I want to, because I'm interested in the project and I want to see it. But now we have a team that is very capable of doing these things by themselves. And there's a really great post in our knowledge tip section, uh, the, the content that we've been talking about, the news section on the... I think this one's called How to Be a CEO in the Background and Lead Others, something like this. This talks about this exactly, this idea of when do, I, when do I delegate something? When do I make the decision? When do I let somebody else make the decision? And it's a hard skill, a challenging skill to get to, but I really feel that I'm there. I'm there doing it. I'm not perfect at it. I'm not saying that I'm a professional at doing this and delegating and, and having other people do what they should be doing and what I should be doing. But I'm getting better and better at it. And this year is the real test of can FinSuite go and grow and learn and do their own thing without me being very present. That blog, just to give the exact title, just in case anyone's looking for it, is how to be a CEO in the background by learning to de delegate everything. So Definitely recommend checking that out. There are loads of powerful insights there. So it sounds like you have basically gone through a process of essentially trying to be delegating, but kind of stepping in and being like, oh, I'm just going to check that just before you put that out. And now you're at a level where it's like, I trust you guys, you'll get it sorted. It's going to be okay. Maybe just to bring back the first thing that you said. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It will be okay. Even mm -hmm. if there's an issue or a mistake or I like I hate to see a spelling error, it's going to be okay, right? Nothing is going to happen really bad to the company, right? This is not, this is not something that will ruin our image or ruin our company. So it's going to be okay. And yeah, that mentality, it has to be with you on a daily basis. If it's not, I think it brings a lot of stress and it brings a lot of anxiety to hope that everything is going to be okay, but you don't have to think about it because it will be okay. Tell me about failure number two, failing to cold call for website clients. Sure. 
failing to cold call website clients. This was, I could have got a poster about this that said failure in cold calling clients for the first year of FinSuite. <laughs> I, I was failing every day trying to get new, new business. It was cold calls. It was sending surprise websites to, to people. It was messaging friends saying, hey, is there any website I can build for you? Just trying to build websites. I would call, I called, I should say, I called over 100 companies in one month and none of them wanted to work with me. It was really sad. And I was so good on the phone too, right? I just came from this other startup. I was leading a sales team. I was great with phone sales. I just came from a phone sales position. Mm -hmm. And now... I can't sell anything. So that was a huge failure where I said, I know what I need now. I need to learn more. I obviously don't, I either don't know enough about this or I don't have enough experience work for people to trust me and to say, yeah, you can build my website. So that was the, the kick that I needed to say, you have to learn. You have to understand more about this. And that's what really pushed and started my obsession with learning Webflow. Just understanding that in order to sell, I need more work and I need to know more knowledge. And that, I'll never forget those, those cold calls. Just, I, I thought I'd get at least one, right? I kept going because I said, let me get at least one from this, this series of failures. And it never happened. So... It's going to be okay. It's all right. And it really helped me become a pro in Webflow. That was the upside of it. Just for anyone that's listening, being like, Joe thought the best way to get clients was, was cold calls. I mean, even as someone that was a salesman, I mean, like that was kind of your, that was your job to, to really struggle to get sales in that, in that way. I mean, is that because trying to get uh, website leads through cold calling is just in your opinion, maybe not the best way of doing it? Or was that because of your lack of knowledge, do you think? I think a little bit of both. It's a great question. Yeah, I think a little bit of both. If I were to call a company today with FinSuite's portfolio and with what I know, I think I could get a company to say yes to a website on a cold call. I really feel that I could do that. But back then, I really didn't know much. I had only played around with websites at the time. I, I, I didn't have any real experience and I didn't know how to talk about it. It doesn't matter how good you are at sales. If you don't know what you're selling, if you don't know how to talk about it, it makes that sale incredibly more difficult. So it's a combination of just not being there yet, not really understanding what I need to do. And also very few people want to be called up and say, hey, come and spend $500 or $1,000 or whatever the amount is. Nobody likes to be called with a with a big ask, with a big company change. So combination of both. There's a great quote on your website, which very much links to this, which says, clarify and educate rather than convince, which I think summarizes really well what you're talking about there. Like if you don't know what you're selling, it's going to be very hard to even convince your mum to buy a website off you. If you can't answer their questions, if you can't confidently tell them 
whatever how many cms items there are in you, like all of that stuff like the basic building blocks of of just providing the right information so that they can make an educated decision as to whether it you know you're the right choice for them or not it's going to dictate whether people will go for you or not absolutely and i think at that time i was convincing i was trying to convince people to get a website built by me because i didn't have enough knowledge to educate them i didn't know what to educate them about i didn't have any education myself so yeah i was absolutely convincing and you know a good salesperson they can they can get by with convincing but that's just not the way to sell it's not the best way to sell it's not it's not the satisfying way to sell so no absolutely wrong strategy from a from every aspect like every aspect of that early time doing outbound sales whether it be the cold calls the friend messages the making surprise websites for companies just wasn't right it wasn't the right step for me i needed to do that after i knew knew the industry knew the the product so if you were to give advice back to joe in 2016 i mean would you say joe put the phone down lock yourself in a room for a few months and get working you know get mm -hmm. get a real depth of skill set with building websites know what you're talking about and and have a strong portfolio that you can actually show rather than tell with is that the advice that you would would give a an earlier version of yourself that's exactly the advice of course and the the cold calls it wasn't really a problem for me it's not like i spent months cold calling and months doing marketing remember that i just came from phone sales so making 100 calls is a lot of calls but it just felt normal to me. It, it, I, it really didn't hurt me. It was just a, a moment where I said, wow, I need to do something else now. Mm -hmm. So I very quickly learned from that failure and I, I went on the right path. But yes, what you said, start building that portfolio, start understanding what you're selling, understanding this industry. That's the first step. That is absolutely the first step. And very often when you're doing that, it's not the time to make money and it's not the time to grow your client list. You have to build projects for yourself and just for fun to get started. Yeah, I think that's really strong advice. It's seriously stressful trying to get paid jobs when you're starting as well. So I think, I'm not sure if Joe, you'd, you'd resonate with this, but if at the start you need to get money, then get a part-time job or something that yeah. provides you the money so that it takes the pressure off you being desperate trying to get clients because I've tried to do both at the same time while I'm learning Webflow and then trying to get clients and people can smell desperation. It's, it's whether, whether you're reaching out, cold emailing, whether you're phoning your best mate, it doesn't matter. They can sense that you are not confident and you yeah. need that work rather than you know, think you're the best person to help them with whatever the problem is that they're trying to solve, right? And do you, do you resonate with that advice? Absolutely, yes. Sometimes it's really easy to tell when somebody is not experienced. It's, you can, you can tell in that lack of confidence. I, I absolutely agree with that. And looking back, I was probably doing that. I, w I mean, I, I was, I had to have been. So yeah, it's just, it's not as fun that way either. 
in my opinion. If you're not selling something that you know and that you love, sales becomes very difficult very soon. So, mm. yeah, that's I absolutely agree with that. Question about that. I mean, you had gone from a sales job and I can imagine that you'd be very good at sales. Like you've got a, you know, nice voice, you're very chilled, like it seems like, you know, you could sell insect repellent to a wasp. But <laughs> What I don't understand is why you then were like, I'm really good at sales. I'm now going to lock myself away and make websites for people. Can you just explain, because maybe we should have covered this earlier in the podcast, but why did you then decide that you were like, I'm going to change career and I'm going to knuckle down here? I became so interested in websites and technology through the previous startup. So there were some tech problems with the, the startup, applications not working, websites not working. And through that, I became very interested in how it worked. Like, how is it working yesterday and it's not working today? And you made this update and now everything is broken. How does it work like that? Can I learn enough about websites where I can help the company with websites? This kind of curiosity about web and tech was just so strong for me. And starting with web started... It, it, it was supposed to be a side thing. I was looking for something in more of the sales path. But as I started this web side thing, I thought, wait, this is really cool. I really like this. It's fun. It's interesting. I feel smart when I, when I work, which is cool. And I, I never felt that with sales. I never feel smart when I'm with sales because it's just too natural for me. I'm not learning anything where I, where I think, wow, this is a whole new skill for me. But with web, every few days I was learning something completely new. So it was very exciting. And that was really what brought me there, why I said, I, I want something new and I want something exciting. And this web thing was, was there for me. Mm. And I guess having that sales background as well, obviously, lent itself really well once you did have the knowledge and you did have a few projects under your belt to to then be the kind of front face of the studio while you hired devs to to grow the agency. Absolutely. After we got going, after there were some projects in the portfolio, it was a growing portfolio, I became really good at sales because now I know how to talk about your problems. I know how to fix your problems. I know all the challenges that you're facing already. I've helped other companies overcome those challenges and I'm ready to talk about it. I'm ready to, to show you live that, that that challenge you have will no longer be a challenge after you're done working with me. And with that kind of knowledge, that kind of confidence, that kind of, that kind of passion towards it, sales became very easy. Tell me about failure number three, hiring the wrong people early on in your FinSuite journey. This is something, hiring the wrong people is, it's a consistent point of failure for many companies, including FinSuite. It was early on in the company, in the middle of the company, even present day of the company. We don't always get it right. And with every person that doesn't work out, we learn something new. We learn something new about our culture. It helps us select better in the future. So we're getting better and better and better at it. 
But early on in FinSuite, I didn't really know what to look for. I was pulling designers out of Dribbble that had what I call fake portfolios, where they take a template, they change a color, they change the logo on it, and then they call it their work. And when I was first hiring designers, these Dribbble fake artists were all over. And I hired several of them. And it was total failure, embarrassment to clients. I always fixed the, the issue, but there were a lot of people that were brought on that, that really hurt client projects, really hurt the reputation that I was trying to build. And with every person that didn't work out, I thought, okay, now I know. Dribble is no longer a way that I'm finding people. Or on Dribble, I'm not going to look for these things. Anybody with these things, I see a trend. They're, they're not going to work out. So really understanding with every person that doesn't work out who the next hire should be, and I think more importantly, what the, what the culture is. So that early, early part of FinSuite, I really understood we need this type of person at FinSuite. And it happened through many, many failed hires. And it also sounds like as you got to know yourself more, like you, you know the culture that you're trying to create, the more you try and create the culture to a certain extent. And I guess as you grow and develop and you take on a project that you really don't like and you're like, okay, I don't want the skill set that can do this type of project anymore because I don't want to attract that type of client anymore, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's kind of like this never ending trial and error process of, of like the right person may change depending on the, you know, where you are in your, in your agency journey, I'd imagine as well. Absolutely. And also by role. So I think that I'm really good at hiring Webflow developers. I know Webflow developers so well. I can look at a few read-only links. I can talk to you. I can figure out how, you, how you'll interact with clients. And I can make really good Webflow development hires because I know this person really well. I've been this person. I know mm -hmm. how to ask questions to this person. But then we look at something like a software developer, an engineer. Um, I don't know that person as well. I don't, I'm not very good at hiring for JavaScript developers or software. That's not something that I, I, I can do very well. Still, right? I've, I've made some good hires there, but there have been more failed hires than successful hires on the technical side. So... It's constantly changing in the business and it's constantly changing based on the role. And as the company grows, there's more roles. There's different roles. So constantly, this, this person that needs to work with us, they need a, a set of skills that match with our culture, but they also need really specific skills. And sometimes it's hard to find those before you start working with somebody. So it leads to a lot of failure. You bring somebody on to start working and you realize, wow, they don't have this specific scale that we didn't really check for early on because we didn't realize it would be so important in this new role. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's such a nuanced thing, but it's like the make or break between a great hire and an abysmal hire, which can like, you know, destroy relationships with clients and stuff. It's so, it's fascinating that the dynamic that, also, the more people you add as well, the more complex and nuanced this gets and the more it needs to be right. 
which I think is is another huge complexity, which which maybe a lot of you know Webflow agencies, by virtue of Webflow not being around for very long, a lot of Webflow agencies are very young. A lot of agency owners that I've met are very young. I mean, like yeah. I'm 27. I know agency owners that are 20, 21. Yeah. I mean, they've barely got rid of their acne and they're trying to make hires. What advice would you would you give to them if you were to kind of break down if there was one key hiring lesson that you've learned, you know, or one question that you think you need to ask them, how what what kind of key bit of advice would you give those young agency owners looking to hire? Well, I'll answer this specifically for young hires, people that are just starting out, uh, people that are new at this. And I would say, hire somebody that's like you. Hire somebody that you see similar traits in yourself. I'm talking early hires, right? You can't do this forever, right? There has to be different ideas and different ways of doing things later on in the business. But when you're hiring the first person, hire somebody that thinks like you. Hire somebody that is ready to have the same work ethic as you. Hire somebody that is that shares your your way of communication or how kind or polite you are, how fast you are, how motivated you are. If you try to find somebody that is similar to you, it's going to be easier to work with that person. They're likely going to share the same culture initiatives as you will. And then as you hire the next person and the next person, the more people that are like you, the more your culture is going to embody your idea of culture. And of course, when I think of culture, a lot of it is thinking about how I would do culture, right? That's the one making the decision of how we can transform this culture. It's my thoughts. So if I have more people like me working on the team, that that culture initiative will be brought out really well. Uh, so that would be my advice. And that's a very general advice, right? The, I, I could go over the 10 most important questions for hiring people. But if it was just one thing, it would be hire someone like you. That's fascinating. So what you're saying is that you're looking at the human that you're hiring for their for their personality traits far more than their, I don't know, a different skill set or something like that. You're just saying, look, you need to have alignment when you're starting or it's going to go off the rails really fast. Yeah, exactly. And if you, mm. if you just hire for talent and that person is not like you and they're very different from you, as you start growing the company, the culture goes in all different directions. And maybe those are not good directions. They could be good directions, but they may not be. Talented people could be bad people. And what I mean by bad people is they don't fit into your idea of culture in this context. So, yeah, it's, it's really important for that that mutual relationship, you have to enjoy the people you're working with. And it's just science. You enjoy hanging out with people that are like you. You don't enjoy hanging out with people that are so dramatically different that you can't communicate with them or you can't joke with them. You can't be working at the same time and, and enjoy it. So yeah, that's, that's a good one. And we definitely did that early on, bringing on these people that, that had the same work ethic as me that had the same motivation for growth. 
And looking back on it, of course, the people that worked out were more like that, and the people that didn't work out were less like that. So, yeah, that's that's my answer there. It's really interesting insight, though, that you're essentially saying you're developing a culture before having you know the quality of work like you said at the start of this interview you're you're kind of nurturing people who may not have the talent or they have the intent to be the level of talented that they are now but when they started they were actually maybe just people who just loved finsuite and were just going to back you know whatever product project that you were working on or product that you were thinking about or brought their own ideas to the table with the same enthusiasm that you had and then the talent kind of became clear or the skill set got raised as they worked there for longer but the core thing that you're looking at for the hire is the the culture fit and making sure that you actually want to hang out with them it's so basic but it's really important advice absolutely and the strategy works really well when you're ready to nurture people into that professional position it's one of my favorite parts about finsuite is seeing the internal growth in the company it's really amazing to see what people have done in such a short period of time, what they've learned in such a short period of time. We've had people people on our team. There's somebody that was one week away from being homeless, and they started working at FinSuite. There was somebody that was working at a gas station. That was their full-time job. They were a cashier at a gas station. They started working at FinSuite. There were people that started with zero client work, and they started working. Our CTO was building marketing sites before he came to us, and he learned how to be a CTO. Amazing. So if you, if you get the right people culture-wise and you think they are going to grow into something special, it's, it's the best way to grow a culture because people, let me say, I'll say growth is part of our culture and it's exciting. People grow and they feel good about themselves. They feel good about work and then they feel good about FinSuite and they feel good about being part of this team. And this is so important for a company as a whole, for people to really feel good about work. And that comes down to culture. It comes down to those personality traits, not by skill. So we get people that are ready to learn, ready to work, and dedicate their work life to growing. And that's the strategy, and it's working really well. And that is my favorite part about FinSuite. It's, it's seeing that internal growth. It's amazing. Joe, are you ready for the final question? I am. What is your next failure going to be? Okay, next failure. The, the next failure, you know, this is a really interesting question. I try not to think about future failures. I, I go into everything with the expectation that it will not fail, but if it does fail, it's okay. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have this one ready right now. I'm going to answer it, but this, is, this feels very weird for me to answer. I would much rather look in the past and understand those failures and just keep moving and doing what I th- what what we think is best. But my next failure I think is going to be somewhere around 
the operations of product. We are, I think we are doing very well with product. We are, we're really, we're doing a lot with very little resources, very little working resources, very little money, and we are outputting a very, very nice set of products. As we continue to grow these products and grow these teams that are working on the products, I see there being some operational, organizational friction, just naturally, as teams are growing in different directions with different products, but they all need to kind of communicate and talk to each other. So I see some failure in there. It's already starting to happen a little bit. Not bad, uh, but yeah, I think it's going to get more challenging and I'm ready for it. I'm like, it's, it will happen and that's fine, no problem. Uh, we'll learn from it, but it's completely different than agency. Uh, the, the agency model we have down so well. I built a good base. Jay Wolf, our head of sales, head of agency, has done such a good job continuing and growing that agency. We, we're so good at that. But product is so new for us. So I really see some potential friction in that product side. How good was that episode? Come on. So many nuggets and it's really hard to just pick out one takeaway for you guys. But I think the thing that most stood out to me was when Joe talked about hiring. Joe's advice for new agency owners looking to hire is that they should hire somebody that is like them in mentality, passion, work ethic, and someone you actually want to spend a lot of time with. The more people that are like you as an agency owner, the more people that will embody your idea of what you want the culture of the agency to be. And Joe goes on to talk about how people like that that see your vision and respect you will become great technically over time. So even if they're not the greatest technically at the start when they join you, if they have the right culture fit, then over time, they'll want to carry on working with you and they'll grow and become technically able. But hiring a technical person that's straight away and you realize that doesn't fit with your culture might not be a good fit and actually detrimental over the long term and they might skew your culture so it's worth bearing that in mind really really powerful episode though i mean i could talk to joe for hours but i'll have to have him on the podcast again for the coming four weeks guys we will be reposting some of the best bits or best episodes from the webflow catalog while we redo the website create some content start the webflow book club and rearrange some bits but essentially we'll do new episodes starting again on the 8th of august i am so excited for what's to come though and i really hope you guys appreciate all the things that will and i are going to be doing in the future hopefully for for the webflow community that's given me and will so much thanks again for supporting webflow for these 50 episodes though it means the world i cannot explain how much value i get from all the amazing messages i receive so just thanks so much is what i want to say i'm getting a bit teary look at that god i'm so sad i appreciate you tremendously thank you